Welcome back to Series 3 of Mud Between Your Toes, Conversations with Pete Wood. In Season 2, I interviewed fascinating people with a connection to Africa and to me. It got me thinking because I've had the enormous privilege to meet the most extraordinary people along this journey of life. So in Series 3, I'm interviewing people from around the world, from all walks of life, and all with a good story to tell. So sit back and enjoy. Hello, my guest today is an award-winning filmmaker, television presenter, news correspondent, and eco-warrior. He's the executive producer, director, writer, and narrator of the breathtaking global documentary, A Plastic Ocean. And as if that isn't enough, he also has a new film, The Last Glaciers, due to be released in 2021, which we'll get to a little later. So Craig Leeson, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks, Pete. Good to see you again. Now, Craig, let's begin with The Plastic Ocean, which was ranked the number one documentary on iTunes in the US, UK and Canada. It's currently available globally on Amazon and Netflix with the backing of Leonardo DiCaprio. The film has been an astonishing success, with Sir David Attenborough calling it one of the most important films of our time, and even has a cameo scene with Barack Obama chatting to Attenborough. So can you tell us what's it all about and how it all began? Yeah, the film uh, is an, uh, an awakening, actually, and a personal awakening is the way we tell the story, but it provides an awakening and an awareness for the audience on the issue of single-use plastic. And that's actually how it happened. I wasn't aware of, of the problems of single-use plastics until the issue was brought to me by the producer, who's a scientist. And once I found out how pervasive and damaging this product was, then we, we wanted to look at what was happening all around the world. And, and we focused on, on the North Pacific Ocean and a, a current there where these plastics were collecting. And what we found there was that there was so much of this stuff in the water that it was, was shocking to, to the scientists. So we wanted to see if that situation was happening around the rest of the oceans. And nobody could really tell me whether that was the case. So that was the Kickstarter. We, we believe that if it was happening to such an extent in the North Pacific gyre, uh, then it must be happening in the other four gyres, these big ocean currents, these engine rooms of the earth uh, elsewhere. Um, but we needed proof. And so we took teams of scientists with us and uh, we embarked on a four-year film production, which is how long it took us to 21 countries around the world. Uh, and the actual project took eight years to, to film and to edit and to release. I must say the film really does bring home the state of our oceans. And I think it was the first time that I had ever heard about this island of plastic, the size of Texas, floating around the Pacific. Tell us about the dangers we're facing from plastic in our seas. Yeah, well, it started out as an oceans documentary because that's where we found all of this single-use plastic material that uh, is the detritus of our own lifestyles. Um, but it moved into becoming a human health documentary, and that's why it took so long and why we had to 
increase the the length of the filming period because the more questions we asked, um, the the further we had to go, and because we weren't getting the answers, and there wasn't a great deal known about the problem at the time. We didn't know the extent of the problem, and we also didn't know um, what problems these plastics would cause us uh, in terms of disease as humans um, until we 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 followed through with that and we found some research that had started to look at that and were able to talk very generally about the problems that were existing. So what we found initially was that um, all of the single-use plastics that we use, we were, we were taught to throw them away and that by putting them in a garbage bin, they would go away and never to be seen of again. But of course, there is no way. And what's been happening is that these plastics have been going to landfill, have been washing into the river systems, washing into stormwater drains and heading into our oceans, where through the action of waves, uh, oxygen and sunlight, these plastics break up. They don't break down. When we say break down, we tend to think that they biodegrade. These don't biodegrade. They stay around forever, even in tiny parts or microplastics, as we call them. So they break up into small bits. And in the ocean, because of their molecular structure, they're very attractive to other toxins, to pesticides, uh, to mining runoff, um, to, to all the other crap that we, we've put into the ocean that comes from our, our lifestyles and our food production and primary industries. And those toxins look for uh, molecules that are easy to attach to, and the plastic molecules are easy to, to attach to. So the plastic ends up acting like a sponge and becomes this double poison pill for any animal that consumes it. And so what's happening is that these plastic particles over time in the ocean, they attract also marine growth and fish lay eggs on them and they start to smell like food. And uh, fish consume these plastics and we've got evidence of, of consumption all the way down to the level of plankton. So it's at the base of the food chain. And as they consume the plastic, the other toxins attached to the plastic release from the plastic uh, because they prefer fatty oils and tissue and they lodge in the tissue of fish and that's where they bioaccumulate. So a small fish is eaten by a bigger fish uh, and all of those toxins release into that fish and then that fish is consumed by a bigger fish and the toxins release in that fish and bioaccumulate. And so it goes on and on up the food chain. And of course, who's at the top of the food chain? We are. And so we're discovering that uh, humans are bioaccumulating the chemicals, not only of the plastics, but also of the toxins that the plastics uh, 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 soak up. And that's where we start to see problems and the human health consequences. Now, of course, it sounds like it's a rather depressing film to actually watch, when in fact it's absolutely beautifully filmed, very much like the BBC's Blue Planet. Mm, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. Uh, that was uh, something that I designed to do as, as the director. I wanted people to make the connection between the beauty of the world, um, uh, the, the, the fantastic connection that we should have to the earth and to other species, and so that they would feel what uh, the consequences of the threat to the life support systems that uh, these plastics are causing. And I wanted people to make that connection. So I very much went out with the ideal 
to film in a very Attenborough-esque way and a BBC way. And so I used, um, at the time, brand new cinematic technology, um, which were, were these red cameras that were shooting in full 4K resolution at the time. It was a new thing. Most of the, the Attenborough films and other big documentary and BBC films were shot on on uh, 10, what's called 1080 or 1000 lines of resolution. Um, so these were cinematic cameras and they were expensive and they were very difficult to use on boats and underwater. Um, but we persevered with them because I wanted the film uh, to last. I wanted it to be able to play in cinemas and in IMAX cinemas. Uh, and I wanted people to feel the warmth that they, they got with uh, actual 35 millimeter film uh, that was used back in the day these cameras provided a very similar psychological feel to the images. And uh, so by design, uh, I used those cameras for the reasons that you just outlined. Craig, who are the biggest polluters? I mean, is it fair to name names? It is fair. I think once uh, polluters have been given a chance and have been made aware, if they're not changing their course of action, in the film, I don't name names. Um, I don't point the finger. And I do that um, because I want everybody to understand that we're all part of the problem and that uh, change starts with us. It starts with the individual. And I actually come to that realisation myself within the film and I show a scene where I'm with a scientist opening up the stomach of a shearwater bird and it's absolutely jam-packed with plastic and it's a shocking scene to watch. Uh, but it was at that point that I realised that I was as responsible as everybody else for the plastic that was in that bird because within the stomach of, of one of those birds we opened up was a, a red bottle top from a beverage and, of course, it's a, quite an iconic one. It's a, it was from a Coca-Cola bottle. And mm -hmm. I realised that that could have been from a beverage bottle, could have been Coca-Cola or any other brand, that I'd consumed 10 years ago before I'd become aware of the situation and, and just thrown into the rubbish bin and had found its way to the ocean and had been consumed um, by a seabird um, in mistaking it for food. And so I wanted everybody to feel that moment in the film. But what we realised today and three years after that film has been released is that uh, many of these companies haven't changed their ways, uh, that recycling doesn't work, and we can talk about that in a bit, um, and, that, and that many of these systems have actually failed us. And so in order uh, to make sure that, we, that these companies do actually start to work in the right direction, do start to follow the new consumer trends, then I think it is time to start to name them. And... Um, uh, of course, we do know now who the, the top three worst polluters are, and they are companies that produce a lot of single-use plastic packaging, like the Coca-Colas, like the Nestle's. Um, these are big companies, Unilever, that use a lot of single-use plastic on their products. And up until recently, haven't really looked at addressing the problem. We are now seeing uh, these companies and the ones I just named start to address the problem, but still they're not going far enough. In my opinion, we have to ban single-use plastic products because they're not working. It is a failed design. It's a failed system. Uh, and these companies are responsible for this product. Of course, there's a sense of irony that these major corporations have their signature, their names printed on the pieces of plastic that are floating around the ocean. So they can't exactly deny it, can they? 
No, they can't deny, but they've been very clever with their marketing. And, and what they did was that uh, they backed the, uh, the recycling system by saying consumers should recycle. And yes, we should have recycling without actually being a part of that recycling. Uh, and by doing that, they put the onus of responsibility off of themselves onto consumers. And so they've, they've said since the 60s that consumers are, should be responsible for recycling, which is, is wrong. We shouldn't be. It should be cradle to cradle responsibility. If you make a product and it finds its way into the environment, you should be responsible for that. Um, but what they did was by making consumers responsible, we all thought, okay, then we need to recycle. And so we started recycling. We, we, we've all been part of recycling. But of course, that recycling doesn't work unless you have uh, the, the technology and the infrastructure in your community to make that recycling work. And very few places around the world have had that. You know, we now know that the US recycles less than 7%. Australia's uh, figures are also woeful. Europe um, is, is dreadful, except for in countries like Germany, which we show in the film, that actually have uh, closed loop systems uh, to deal with this waste problem and incentives for consumers to help with that system. But many countries don't have that. And so they, these manufacturers of plastic products have played on that and they've made us feel as consumers guilty for the problems that we have. Um, we should take responsibility, but we shouldn't take all the responsibility. And now I think it's playing back on them because we're, we're now using that guilt to go, hang on a minute, you've played us, you've played us through clever marketing. We're not going to buy into that anymore. And the next generation certainly knows who's responsible for the plastic products. They know that they don't have to be part of that system anymore. And they are as consumers uh, becoming smarter consumers and spending money on alternative products to these single-use plastic products and the packaging that they come in. Now, the film has been seen in over 70 countries and in dozens of languages. It's clear that the message you and your team are trying to get across is that we can help, we can do something about it. But really, is there hope? I mean, plastic is quite literally everywhere. And I don't know, but can we expect a person who is struggling to put food on the table to ignore that discount bag of apples, which is wrapped in plastic, and buy the more expensive organic fruit that isn't wrapped in plastic. It's a problem, isn't it? Absolutely. And there are many uh, issues that you've addressed in there, but you're absolutely right. Um, is it fair uh, in a developed country to demand those in developing countries uh, to not go through the processes and privileges they've had in terms of, of their waste and the way that they deal with their race? And, and it isn't fair, but... But that's where developed countries now have to go back and assist developing countries with new technology. Um, and a good example of this is that when you look at the, 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 the top 20 pollu ocean polluting countries on the planet, those are countries uh, that are responsible for single-use plastics that end up in the ocean. The, the first six are Asian. Um, it's China, Indonesia, uh, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, and initially you look at that and you go, well, this is an Asian problem. But when you look really closely at a lot of the waste that we find in the water and you analyse where it comes from, most of the packaging, uh, or, or much of it rather, comes from developed countries like the US, 
uh, from these companies we spoke about earlier, Nestle, Unilever, uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, it comes from Europe. It comes from Australia. Um, there is a lot of it that comes from Asia and particularly places like the Philippines and Thailand where because of poverty or uh, uh, low incomes, people tend to buy small sachets of shampoos. Um, they're sold in smaller packages because it's more affordable. Um, but a lot of that uh, packaging does come from overseas and, and those countries don't have the infrastructure to support uh, that packaging. So what's happened is as these countries have joined trade, joined the WTO, they've been pressured, um, have been given bank loans, but they've also been pressured to take products and they're buying these products, but they're not being given the infrastructure to deal with it. So it's still a developing country problem. And this is where I think developed countries need to go in and need to be responsible for a lot of this and help these uh, developing countries uh, implement infrastructure, build new infrastructure, uh, and ban a lot of these single-use plastics. As you see in the film, it causes uh, massive, terrible problems in, in these countries. We showed the Philippines, for example, which had you know, has had Smoky Mountain has been built up over the last 40 years. It's now closed, but all that plastic is still there. And because of the, the gases and the methane that are being released, it's on fire and it's smoking and it's putting all these furans and dioxins and terribly cancerous uh, compounds and agents into the air. And that's why they have uh, terrible uh, health problems around uh, those places where these uh, dumps exist. And you've also got that leaching into the bay and into the ocean, which causes other problems. So, yes, I, I agree with you that um, uh, it does look like it's a, it's a terrible problem, but we, we still can clean this stuff up. We, we, we are developing the technology now, and that's where we have to go. And the, and the, the film ends with that. We, we look in the third act of the film at the solutions, and I think it's important that we do that within the film because we, we don't want people leaving a cinema or leaving their couch thinking there is nothing that they can do. We want to empower people to go out and act. And uh, I think that's the ultimate message in the film is that as an individual, there is something you can do. And that was the feedback we got. I, I had people still to this day who send me emails every day um, saying that the film changed their life, that they quit their job, uh, that they started a uh, became a, a businessman and started a, a recycling company or started developing an a alternative product, a single-use plastic product. So we know that um, the message has definitely been getting through. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that anyone who's seen the film will agree that it's had an enormous impact on our lives. You must be extraordinarily proud of that. Yeah, the look, what I am proud of is... Uh, when I see metrics come back at us, and it's very difficult to find uh, a lot of these metrics because companies like Netflix don't share with you the, the audience statistics. Um, but uh, we know that since the film was released, uh, more than 150 countries around the world have implemented some kind of legislation, some kind of ban, some kind of taxation, some kind of levy against single-use plastic products. And we know that we're a part of, of that and the part of the reason that that's happened. Um, I travel and, and I, I advise governments and corporations all around the world and get a lot of feedback. And, you know, when I was, for example, when I was in Chile, the environment minister uh, told me that he and his wife watched the film and he said, look, it was so depressing. We both cried 
Um, but at the end of the film, it was uplifting. And, and I woke up the next morning and my wife was digging her elbow into my ribs and, and saying to me, you're the environment minister, go to work, create legislation, do something about this. And he said, so I did. I, I went to work and for the next two months, we rewrote legislation banning plastic bags along the coastlines of, of Chile. Uh, and then when we managed to implement that and people understood it and got on board with that, we then implemented a national ban. Uh, and the new government actually that came in shortly there and after actually took up that mantle and, and took it even further. So we know that we are having an effect at a government level, which is critical because this is where, you know, solutions happen very quick, uh, quickly but also at a, at a corporate level. And um, we're seeing many changes take place within corporations. And uh, I had a, a, a retailer, a German retailer, uh, call me the other day asking for advice. And he'd spent the past two years redesigning the packaging on the products that they sell through their department stores throughout Germany so that it wasn't single-use uh, plastic packaging. And... Um, and that's a result. That's fantastic to, to hear those stories. Right, Craig, can we move on to your latest project, The Last Glaciers, due out this year and is said to be the most comprehensive film ever produced about the relationship between climate change, mountain environments and glaciers. This, I suspect, is a harder sell. After all, we've all seen the litter on the beaches and the oceans firsthand. But few of us know much about glaciers and their importance. So can you tell us about the film? Yeah, well, this film is, is very similar in the approach that I've taken with it um, to a plastic ocean. It's, a, it's about my own personal awakening and awareness to the issue of climate change and wanting to find out more information about it. Uh, and that's pretty much what happened after I made A Plastic Ocean, which was a, a long project. Um, I went into the mountains uh, to, to relax uh, and to, to start a personal challenge. And I wanted to climb um, Mount Everest with a, a buddy of mine, Malcolm Wood, who's a restaurateur in Hong Kong and, and, and has restaurants all around the world. Um, and we went there to start training and he is a, you know, he's a mountain guy. He's got uh, uh, extreme sports uh, skills and, and a background in that. And so he took me up to, to start the training process and for me to start familiarizing myself. And it was the middle of winter. It was in the French Alps and there was very little white. It was mainly brown. And I was shocked that uh, at that time of year, there wasn't much snow. And as I started talking to guides and people who worked in the area, it was a very familiar story. They were telling me that over the past three decades, they'd noticed the winters were getting warmer, uh, less snow was coming and that the glaciers were retreating. And I went back to Hong Kong um, and I was thinking about this and I had, I had to do a, a, a keynote speech at a conference. And at that conference, there was a scientist called Jerome Chapelez and he was from the oldest glacial institute on the planet in Grenoble in France. And he presented this uh, talk where he explained climate change and the facts behind how man is responsible for the climate heating up since the Industrial Revolution in a very, very simple way. And it was the first time I'd actually understood the science. 
and it set off light bulbs. I went, wow, if, if this is something that I can understand, why isn't this story being told so that everybody can understand it? And climate change is a very, very dense science. It's got so many facets to it. And it's told by scientists uh, who are very specific in specific areas uh, in ways that I think has been very confusing to the public overall and has allowed the fossil fuel industry and their lobby groups to argue against the science, uh, even though they're facts and to confuse us. So I spoke to Malcolm about this and said, look, you know, this is a story that needs to be told. Um, and the basis of the story was the ICE memory project that Jerome was heading up. And what it was, was uh, a project where they're going around the world, they're digging into glaciers, they're drilling in, and they're taking ice core samples from different depths around these glaciers. And within those ice cores are the bubbles that have been trapped for hundreds of thousands of years are going up to a million years, uh, which tell them what the atmosphere was like at different stages over the development of these glaciers over these hundreds of thousands of years. So they can tell what the atmosphere contained and even the temperature going back a million years. And they're able to draw graphs. And in the film, we show that graph where you've got this natural oscillation of methane and CO2 and nitrous oxide, the worst of the, uh, of the greenhouse gases, up until the Industrial Revolution happens. And then you see this hockey stick just go off the graph. And you can tell that man is responsible for the sudden uptick and the, the 1.3 degrees change in, in temperature, the heating of the globe very quickly outside of the normal temperature heating uh, that you would expect during this phase of the Earth's uh, wobble, elliptical wobble around the sun. So that was the story I wanted to tell. Um, glaciers are a very visual tool. They're easy to see, and we can see that they're melting because they're melting extraordinarily rapidly. And I thought, well, we've got the visual tool to explain climate change. Let's go out and, and, and look at doing that. You mentioned that this film is a code red wake-up call. Its message is simple. We must protect and restore our life support systems before they completely collapse. It's a pretty desperate situation, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I was shocked, like I was with the with the plastic ocean, when I went up to sea, and you know, and I trained to go into these high mountain hostile um, environments uh, with scientists. And when you see uh, these incredible water storage devices that we rely on uh, receding up the valleys, just completely gone, and 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 dead in many cases. Um, it is shocking. And it's shocking when you understand how important they are to us, how we cannot live without them, um, but how they are going. And in many places, like Peru, for example, in the Andes, uh, Peru since the 1990s has lost half of its glaciers. It had more than 750 glaciers. Half of those have disappeared since the 1990s. All of them will be gone by the end of the century. Peru is one of the driest countries on the planet. Lima is in the, one of the top 10 driest cities on the planet, drier than the Sahara Desert in many places. They rely on glacial melt, uh, not only for their own hydration, but for industry, for their gold mines, for manufacturing, uh, for their crops, for livestock, agriculture. What are they going to do when the water runs out? 
Um, Peru doesn't know. They have a scientific institute called INEGEM that is studying that very question right now. And we worked with them in Peru to understand all of the problems that receding glaciers are causing uh, that country. Amongst the, the well, the, the top problem is migration. And as uh, these glaciers melt, you've got entire communities, townships that uh, are forced to get up and move because they just don't have the water there anymore. And migration is one of the biggest problems that will and already is confronting us globally because when people are starving or, or dehydrated, they don't care about borders. Uh, they don't care about laws. That All they want to do is to feed and, and, and shelter their kids and they'll do anything to do that. And so that uh, that is something that is being caused by climate change and is something that we're all going to have to, and in many cases in many countries in Europe and the US, we're, we're already dealing with. It's a dark subject matter. So I suppose I have to ask, is there hope? I mean, how can we help? And do you have a final message to our future generations? One of the big threads in the film is actually the next generation. Uh, what we're saying in the film is that what is the legacy we are going to leave them? And uh, we follow their hopes, their aspirations, their concerns through uh, interviews with people like Greta Thunberg and, and other student leaders, um, because ultimately this is their world and we're not leaving them something that's very hopeful. Um, that well, No one can survive on a dead planet, that no economy works on a dead planet. Um, so we look at the the changes we need to make the the way that we need to keep the earth below this 1.5 degree temperature increase that scientists say we are heading to by 2050 if we do that scientists tell us that that we can mitigate and we can slow down a lot of these loops that have uh, these these systems that have already started to to roll and to create collapses in, in life support systems around the world. We are seeing massive collapses in biodiversity, in fish stocks uh, all over the planet. We're seeing soil erosion. Um, these are things that we, we have to stop if we're going to survive. So what we're told, and, and you know, we, we interview the head of the United Nations Environment Program, and, and he basically gives us eight years uh, to change what we're doing, to stop burning fossil fuels, uh, as consumers to demand uh, sustainable products and to work with companies that have environment, social and governance built into their ethos. And uh, so that's basically the message. We've got eight years. We have to turn it around. We have to start now. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. We need to develop renewable energy. Uh, and if we don't do that, then by the end of the century, the temperature of the planet will be three to five degrees hotter uh, than it, it was pre-industrial levels. And that's a planet that humans have never survived on before. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and that's a very sobering message. It's a very sobering thought. Now, Craig, when can we expect to see the film? When is it out? Uh, well, we've got some very exciting news about a deal we are about to do with a massive uh, global distributor, which I, I can't share with you right now because the ink isn't dry on the contracts yet but uh, um, our plan is to release it in cinemas first and uh, and do that globally uh, we also plan to release it in museums and so and science institutions and, and educational institutions around the world 
uh, and then it will go to uh, hopefully to the streaming platforms and the cable uh, television platforms. And so what we're aiming to do is to kind of have a, a cascade effect so that we get the film uh, on as many um, public media outlets that we can. So people all over the world get to see the film, no matter whether you live in Asia, the US or Europe, uh, we, we think it's a film that everybody should see. The other thing that we're trying to do as well is, uh, um, but one, our partner is the United Nations and, um, and, and they believe the film is the most significant film on this topic that they have seen. And so they're partnering with us and they've submitted the film uh, to be the, the film that's screened at COP26 in November, uh, the big intergovernmental climate conference that's on in Scotland. So we hope to show the film there uh, and that it is seen by political leadership uh, around the world at that conference. Well, it's fantastic news indeed, but unfortunately we're out of time. Craig Leeson, it's been an honor chatting to you. I wish you all the best at the last glaciers. Thank you for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Thanks very much, Peter. I appreciate your time. Well, that's all for now. But if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.